Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. I just spoke with David Muntz about his new book, A Single Sky, How an International Community Forged the Science of Radio Astronomy. This came out in 2013 with the MIT Press. Now, this is a very focused study of the emergence of a particular community within the history of the modern sciences, that is a community of radio astronomers. The story spans the period from roughly the 1940s, mid-1940s, to the mid-1960s, and it looks at the cooperation, the collaboration, the transdisciplinary practice across about seven different international sites that span from the UK, the US, Australia, all over the place. So it's a very focused study of this particular kind of scientific activity that emerged, but at the same time, it's also speaking to some very broad, very common themes and threads that have to do with how we both read and learn, how we write, and also how we practice the history of science. At stake here in this story is not just the history of a particular set of practices, that is the practices of radio astronomers, but it's also some fundamental aspects of the craft of the history of science that include whether we are telling stories about a one single national locality or transnational stories, how much we're focusing on the disciplinary pedagogy, the training, the apprenticeship, and, and other um, kinds of ways of focusing on the labor, and especially the early kind of labor of scientific disciplines and of their early practitioners. It's really interested in the material culture of science. It's interested in also reframing the emphasis from competition shaping Cold War sciences and, and really the modern sciences in general to more of a story about cooperation and collaboration. So there are some really important revisions that are at stake here in this story of radio astronomers, and it's a really interesting study because of that. I had a great time talking with David Munz about it, and I hope you enjoy as well. We're here today to talk with David Munz about his new book, A Single Sky, How an International Community Forged the Science of Radio Astronomy. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, David, and thank you so much for making time to talk with me tonight. Thanks, Carla. It's a pleasure to be here. So, David, could you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you into this field? How did you come to the history of science? Well, my my journey to the history of science was a sort of a a rocky one, as it turns out. Um, I was one of those strange undergraduates that actually had um, dual interests in physics, which I would do, of course, of the morning, and then history, which I would cross campus and do in the afternoon, um, and eventually eventually just did both, um, and didn't realize at the time that you could actually do the history of science. Um, in fact, I was... Uh, I got into the history of science because I responded to a newspaper ad, of all things, um, that Nicholas Rasmussen, well known for his uh, electron microscope book and his uh, more recent book on um, on drugs in, in the U.S., drug industry, um, he he and the uh, unit at the History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Sydney had decided to take out an ad in the newspaper to recruit people. And so I literally responded to an ad are you interested in science plus history? Come and do the history of science with us. And, and that's how I got into the field. I'm the only person, evidently, to ever respond to the ad. <laughs> oh. so, so that's fabulous. That, that is the first time I've ever I've asked this question to lots and lots of people, and I've never heard a response to a newspaper ad. As happened, and that's and, totally and, fabulous. And, and I suspect you never will again. But- <laughs> But it was uh, but it was fairly unique, as it turns out. <laughs> so the, congratulations on the recent publication of your first book. Um, it's great, and it looks at the formation of a transnational radio astronomy community, and we'll talk about the importance of all of the elements of that seemingly simple discussion, or a seemingly simple description that turned out to be actually really important between yep. the years of 1944 and 1964. So how did you come to this topic in particular as the focal point of your research for this book? Yeah. So when I, um, you know, when I began my my dissertation research and these kinds of things, I'd always had an interest, um, particularly in the physical sciences, um, and at the, uh, but also in particularly in the history of astronomy. Um, always been a very, 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 very interested in the history of astronomy, um, astronomical instruments. Um, I found myself very much liking um, histories of material cultures, histories of in- instrumentation, uh, histories of, of groups of people moving around. 
um, because I'm originally from Australia, um, where uh, radio astronomy is very big. Radio astronomy has always been one of sort of Australia's sort of flagship sciences um, for various reasons, many of whom I go into in the book. Um, Australia's always been particularly strong in astronomy, um, which is on the one hand very unusual what the hell are astronomers doing in Australia? But on, but in fact, is actually very sensible. Australia is a, it's a Western country. It has a unique place in the sphere. We have access to the Southern Hemisphere. Um, Australia has always been very, very big and very strong um, uh, in 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 astronomy. So I was interested in a history of astronomy topic, interested in modern history. Um, and so, um, in fact, Nick Rasmussen suggested, well, what about um, what about the history of radio astronomy? Um, that a little bit of work's been done on that recently. There's a very famous book, um, one of the most significant early books in the history and sociology of science, uh, David Edge and Malcolm Mulcahy's Astronomy Transformed. Um, you know, why don't you look at that from... You know, uh, and and see you know see if there isn't something there, something new to say. And so I started out working with the radio astronomers in Australia, moved on to the ones in the United States, and eventually moved on to the ones in England as well. Um, and because I got, because I did graduate school and indeed had jobs in all three locations. I was able to do substantial and deep research in, in each of those places. Um, and so the book then became about tying these institutions together. Um, and it became about what is the history of a broader community look like? What is the history of a field that really stretches around the globe very, very overtly? It, it, the astronomers are very particular in that they want to see the sky everywhere, but you cannot see the southern sky from the northern hemisphere and vice versa. So they, in the end, they had to cooperate with these kinds of things. And, and in that cooperation, they built a new kind of scientific community. So this started out as a dissertation, am I right? Yeah. So this started out as, as my PhD dissertation at uh, Johns Hopkins. Great. So David, can you say a little bit about that transition from dissertation to book? What was the process like for you? Were there any either major transformations of the project from one format to another and or any major surprises along the way? So, um, well, the dis- yeah, I... The transformation from dissertation to book, I think, is always it's always a very tricky one. Um, and in particular, the difficulties here were that um, when I wrote my dissertation, it was very much of a it's a traditional case study dis- dissertation. There's an introduction. It has five chapters. Each of those chapters deals with the specific site of radio astronomy. And so, in some respects, it always felt like five. Five articles. It was almost a classic science dissertation in this kind of ways. Five very discrete chapters that related to one another, but there was very little overlap realistically. Um, and so you you sort of had these very you, these these five discrete elements. What to do with that? Um, when I finished my dissertation, I got one of those um, amazing jobs where you had to teach um, a vast amount. Uh, so. The dissertation project got put on hold for quite some time. The teaching 16 classes a year will do that to a person. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I hold. I think I hold the record for the most number of classes taught in a single year in the history of science. Um, wow. But the um, uh, so, but what that actually allowed me to do, interestingly enough, was for about two years the the dissertation and book project just got pushed to a side. There was just no way it was going to get done. And when I eventually came back to it, um, what I, I tried to tinker with it, but in the end, the best thing to do was to simply pull it all apart and then reassemble it in the way that it should have been assembled in the first place, which is thematically. It's really um, a very distinct, the way the book turned out was um, instead of taking a case study approach, I took a fairly distinct chronological approach, simply things in chronological order and then noting how at the same time in different places, various communities were struggling with various types of issues and then narratively tried to push those those things together, um, which 
which in large respects involved a lot of rewriting and a tremendous amount of reorganization. Um, and when it came to writing and when it came to sort of editing the manuscript to turn it into a book um, with MIT and um, there Marjorie Avery and the entire team at MIT was, was fantastic. Um, there was, as well as my reviewers, we had, there was a lot of to and fro about the structure of the book and how you signposted and guided a reader through a story that kept shifting locations. That was one of its major problems um, because it is difficult to, it's difficult, I think, to, to guide a reader when you're moving fairly rapidly often from California through Australia. Suddenly you're in Cambridge, England. The next thing you know, you're back in New Zealand and you're, you're sort of, you're, you know, you're sailing across this, uh, across this turf. And it's, it, that is often very, very difficult. So I think one of the, the challenges of the book was actually to try and pull that off. Um, and I hope that I've been mildly successful. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine, and I actually I can't even imagine how challenging that would have been in the process of putting the book together. And this is actually something that I'll, I'll ask you about um, at a little bit, in a little bit of a different way later on too. But at the same time, that great challenge of the book is also one of its greatest contributions because I think, and, and this will come out over the course of our conversation today, but one of the really, really important kinds of work that the book does is to offer a kind of model and a, a methodological push toward thinking away from strictly localized, um, disciplinarily and or nationally bound stories into a kind of transnational interwoven um, kind of a narrative, which is both, I, I get it much, much more difficult to write, but also has to lend itself to a structure for the book itself that's fundamentally different from what we typically see in a, you know, single-sided history of science narrative and also just seems like a fundamentally different kind of writing task. Yeah, I and I think you know, I, I, in, to the to the extent that that I'm trying to offer up a you know that kind of model, and I certainly am very very interested. I'm very interested in in topics that are internationally comparative, in sciences that are interdisciplinarily comparative. Um, as I go into, for instance, in the back of the introduction, I think that history of science, particularly in recent history of science or history of science about recent science, um, has really struggled um, with with what is a, what is a scientific discipline anymore. The, the boundaries about what is a scientist and what are its and what are their institutions and what are their disciplinary identities these things have been either undermined or completely changed in the last sort of 40 or 50 years um, so now disciplinarity only exists as a sort of a leftover artifact of of the history of, of sciences um, and I think a lot of scientists really embrace interdisciplinary work and they really move in in much broader circles than they ever used to um, and they uh, and it, it creates then analytical problems for historians of science who are used to sort of these nice categories right we have an institution of, of science that exists in a national context that exists in a disciplinary context those are nice sort of convenient boxes that we can frame our stories in um, but I think science is like radio astronomy um, uh, I, I refer at the end of the introduction to uh, Jamie Cohen Cole's um, great stuff, um, where he he does the same kind of things that the scientists they they're not they're not the same kinds of boxes that they used to be in um, that people are used to. Um, so I think for for a narrative and a and a and a uh, storytelling way um, that that's creating interesting and new things that we can really that really reveal a lot about what what's actually going on in these sciences. So first things first, as we move into the body of the book itself, um, we've used or you've used and um, I think I've used the term radio astronomy a few times to talk about the nature of the book and we've kind of glided past it. And speaking, right. speaking actually as a, as a verbal footnote of gliding past and um, or not and moving locations, you and the listeners might hear occasionally sounds that sound like furniture is moving upstairs. It sounds like it's because probably upstairs furniture is moving around. So just... <laughs> 
we'll just take that as part of our exciting trans-apartmental uh, discourse here and work that into the, the experience that, oh, there we go, the experience of having these trans-local uh, dialogues. Okay, so, so out of the note. Um, so radio astronomy, David, um, for listeners and, and also potential readers or readers who have actually come to the book already um, who have never heard of that, what briefly is radio astronomy? Right. Radio, radio astronomy. Um, radio astronomy is um, one of the new forms of astronomy uh, that really starts in the in the 1930s with some with the origins of radio um, and uh, radio astronomy is really astronomy at radio wavelengths. And one of the great challenges is that you have astronomers who are used to doing their work at optical wavelengths. They're, all, they're used to seeing their subject. They see stars, they see spectra, um, they see through telescopes, they look at star charts. This is what astronomers do. Radio astronomers don't really, well, they see things, but mostly they listen to things. Radio astronomers, um, the the, ra- the information coming from stars, radio wavelengths, is in the sound of what we would call radio noise. Um, and exactly like you would have radio noise on your on your radio as you're going along the car in the middle of an electrical storm, so to the sun, planets, the galaxy, the universe itself um, has a radio produces a radio noise. Um, and if you can learn to listen to that noise and develop instruments to listen to that noise and record that noise, um, you can start to do astronomy um, at radio wavelengths. And this is exactly what these pioneers did, um, uh, beginning really with with uh, Karl Jansky, who was a radio engineer at Bell Labs in the 1930s, um, and then a whole slew of radio physicists, radio engineers, radar technicians um, at the end of World War II and in the beginning of the Cold War, um, they 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 could build radio dishes um, and radar dishes. And when they pointed them at the sky, as very famously um, uh, one of the major Australian radio astronomers who discovered solar noise from um, sunspot activity, actually, um, Joseph Pawsey, um, he would literally stick a, a radio antenna out of his window in his lab in Sydney and point it up at the sky and just sort of wave it around, <laughs> trying to get some measurements about what what is this noise that I'm detecting. And the reason they could detect it is because um, the technology of radio receivers had improved so remarkably throughout the war because of radar, the technology of radar, um, was that now suddenly noise from space became a limiting factor. Um, it became the limit. You couldn't get more sensitive than that because the sun drowned you out. Um, the stars drowned you out. And, and so uh, one, of the, one of the early, uh, well, a lot of the early experimental and uh, research programs are actually to try and figure out where the noise is coming from and what's generating it and how and how you can chart it and what it all means. Now, this is actually a fascinating story because it's not just, as you show early in the book and I think continue um, to develop throughout the book, this is not just about um, one community of people who are self-identifying as radio astronomers, but as you show, this story ultimately is really about changing meanings of astronomy, of what a telescope is, and it really changes astronomy as a science um, writ large, and not it's not just about this one aspect of astronomy that we're talking about. And so there are pretty large ramifications and consequences to what's happening in these you know tw- in this 20 year period a- along these different um, sites that we're going to be looking at yeah no I think so um and in, and indeed here you here I would refer back to the cover image um, which um, the uh, there's a nice parallel here that we're on the radio um, talking about an image which I which I think is actually half the uh, half the battle Um <laughs> But the cover image to the book was a photo that I found at uh, the Caltech archives, and it's and it's one of those sort of great moments when you're doing research and you get this. There's this image, and it's in a file somewhere, and it's just a photo that somebody took at some point. Um, I think it was for a newspaper article. Um, and the cover image of the book shows um, uh, John Bolton, um, one of the uh, ex-Australian, ex-English um, astronomers currently in California. So he himself is a fascinating character in the whole thing, um, standing on the dish that he has 
largely built by himself um, of the early the first radio telescope um, at Caltech um, in California. Um, and in the background, just over the line of trees, is uh, the Palomar Observatory, the, the largest optical telescope in the world. It's only been open less than a decade. Um, its, its size is, is almost unsurpassed. It's a great Art Deco optical visual telescope. Um, one of the famed astronomers at Palomar, um, Edwin Hubble, calls it the astronomical center of the world. And yet here's this photo of this, you know, rinky-dink radio telescope hand-built by this ex-radar guy um, that is now this sort of dominant thing. And the two go together. The, the, uh, it's in the middle of, it's taken in the middle of the day. The subject of John Bolton and the telescope itself are both looking upwards. The, it's a very sort of open image. The dome is there. Um, but the principles of both telescopes are somewhat the same, reflecting incoming information in the form of electromagnetic waves to a central point, um, either in optical wavelengths for the optical telescope or radio wavelengths um, for the radio telescope. Um, but how does that come to be there? How does, how does a radio telescope suddenly become a part of astronomy? Um, how does an X-radar a, a, a navy, a navy lieutenant, I think he was, Royal Navy lieutenant, radar operator, ten less than ten years before, as suddenly um, part of the astronomical community at the astronomical center of the world, building new instruments of new forms. There's a very rapid transformation in a very old and venerable science, um, and. That's sort of one of the one of the sort of the cover image itself. I think speaks to a lot of the themes that I tried to really bring out in the transforming um, nature of the science. Now, you just mentioned Edwin Hubble, who actually turns out to be one of the main characters in the first chapter of the book. So I think he's a great um, place for us to start. Excellent. Into this <laughs> now, a, a lot of the first chapter of the book focuses on Hubble, who is one of the most famous astronomers in his generation, as you tell us in the book. We, you contrast him here with another astronomer, a young astronomer named Custer Baum at Caltech at the end of World War II, and they're making different decisions in the context of this changing landscape um, for scientists, who, for people who are self-identifying as scientists and working in the sciences in the context of the, of the Cold War. Now, you set up this um, situation in this chapter where Hubble and Baum are actually representing two approaches to astronomy and really to the sciences more generally as individuals who choose between what we might consider to be pure research and what we might consider to be industry after the war. So, mm. Um, you got. You actually go on in this chapter to really challenge these polls um, and show that how, or you, you're really showing how the context that um, you're looking at in this part of the book is working in part to take these previously distinct categories like pure and applied science, university and industry, and starting to mix them up. And, and this is one of many cases of mixing that we're going to see through the book. But I think this is um, a good place to perhaps start and explore one of the major threads of the book, which is this, um, sort of how to situate this story of this emerging radio astronomy community within a larger discourse of Cold War science. So you're doing work um, in this part of the book especially, but also you know throughout the other chapters, that really takes a dominant narrative of Cold War science as sort of bound up with and bound to the needs and the whims of the military-industrial complex and using cases like Baum and Hubble and using cases like some of these other um, radio or the emerging community of radio astronomers to really challenge how we think about Cold War science and especially the role of the individual making decisions within that. So I wonder if you could use this as a place to talk a little bit about this as one of the many major themes of the book, how you're situating your study in the context of how we understand the sciences in the Cold War. Yeah. No, um, you know, a lot, a lot of the a lot of the stuff that, that I'm building on, and, and well, any any story of Cold War physical sciences, um, you know, begins with David Kaiser's really foundational work in as, in establishing um, the physicists and and how the physicists become this very dominant um, group and 
how the physicists as a community and particularly has, as as a educational regime, how that really changes um, the, the sheer number, the sheer ballooning size of physics. Um, and what I really took from that was that, and Dave Kaiser and I, to give him due credit, um, is uh, – he, you know, he really pointed out that what I was trying to do was sort of the exact opposite. I was doing the inversion of that story, doing the inversion of the physics story. Um, and that really rang a lot of bells. These, these radar operators, these radio physicists right at the end of World War II um, but, um, should have, one would think, they should have done exactly what um, Custer Baum did. And, and you can imagine, Custer Baum was a a, um, a student um, at uh, at Caltech. He was in this idyllic envir- educational environment, and yet he leaves it to go work for industry. Um, money was a very big lure, but he had jobs. Um, he had he had offers of three or four major jobs from major industry concerns from Berkeley um, and from Caltech itself. So here's a here's a young man, um, a young astronomer. With many options, and so the question, one of the questions, is always, why do people go into where they're going? At the end of World War II, anyone involved with radar has more options than they would probably know what to do with. So the question becomes: Is why, if you're in radar, why would you go into astronomy? It, it's it's not going to be it, it can't be lucrative. Um, what exactly is drawing these very few people into astronomy? Um, and the, the comparison there between Hubble and Kusterbaum is, I think, is I think a nice one because it just sort of centralizes it and gives a nice, um, a nice focus for these extremes. That within, that within a very short period of time, right at the end of the war, people are really going off to make decisions that they don't know what the consequences are. Um, I think one of the one of the real issues in the in the history of science is that we often know what it is that we're looking for. We know where the success story is going to is going to come. But we but one of the things I really wanted to do, particularly in this first chapter, um, was really give this sense that at this particular point in time there were many options on the table for many many people, and why certain people chose certain avenues is somewhat unexpected, but really speaks to the hearts and the values that they hold as scientists and really what it was that they were, that they were going in for. Um, the other great advantage um, about starting off with that is then um, the, uh, one of the, the, sort of the major point at which I tie it all together is the, um, is the epidemiological point right. because, because um, Hubble and Kusterbaum um, along with all of the others, all the other characters in this in this chapter, um, the reader really meets most of the major characters that they're going to meet. They're even even early on. They are related epidemiologically. They are re- they are all connected um, through one another. And so, what I really wanted to establish there was: yes, there is a range of options for astronomers for radio physicists, for radar operators, for institutions, for disciplines. There's a range of options. And those, and when you get a coherent field that seems an unlikely outcome from from that, they're related to one another somehow. The community is pulling them together. Um, Their their relations are pulling them together. Uh, Even even as the military-industrial complex is luring many of them off to um, off to other sides. So, for example, the classic the classic contrast is between Luis Alvarez, who goes off to be you know one of the most successful um, uh, linear accelerator cyclotron physics guys um, in California. Um, he's his friend at the at the radiation laboratory at MIT is Edward Bowen from England, who goes off to uh, the radio physics lab in Australia. And Edward Bowen goes into radio astronomy, and Alvarez goes into um, accelerating particles. Um, And Bowen attempts to accelerate particles too. That is a logical outcome, a reasonable outcome of what he's attempting to do. How then does Alvarez stay in physics, but Bowen ends up being the leader of one of the most successful and significant radio astronomy groups within a decade, in a very, very short period of time? That's That's sort of where that's going. 
Right, and the, the next chapter actually opens with this attempt, um, <laughs> this Australian effort to develop <laughs> yes. an electronic accelerator, and this brings us really nicely into uh, this, uh, this next chapter of the book. But I just want to, um, as a footnote signal for listeners who may not have had um, a chance to read the book, when um, you're talking about epidemiology, this is actually uh, really interesting because you're not talking about epidemiology in terms of a, you know, a field of medical public health study. You're using epidemiology in that part of the book as a metaphor. I think... It, you know, to explain the transformations of this community, the scientific community. So it's really, it's another point in the book in which in a, in a relatively concise work, you're, you're introducing methodological tools that could potentially be taken up and used in all kinds of different studies um, by readers of the book. And so this is um, worth signaling, I think. So, okay, so this attempt um, in Australia to develop an electronic accelerator ultimately isn't super successful, um, but brings us into a really fascinating part of the story in Chapter 2. So Chapter 2 looks at early efforts to study radio noise from the sun and stars, so i.e. radio astronomy, and it looks at the formation of this really important concept that you've been talking about that's so central to the work that the book is doing, and that is the emergence of a community. And community here is going to be a very important word for us. It's a very important term. It's not just a word that we're using to describe a a group of people. It actually has very strong conceptual resonance for the work that the book does. So this brings us to also a major, one of the major axes of the book, as you call them at the beginning of the book. This is the importance of scientific communities transcending disciplinary and national boundaries. So you argue in this part of the book here that having, and and you mentioned this already a little bit earlier, but having singular national or singular disciplinary narratives has really skewed in some ways our entire picture of the history of science. And often in the context of Cold War science, that's been a picture that's been skewed to this story of the U.S., Now, um, what you're showing in this chapter of the book is really the deeply transnational history of radio astronomy. The events that formed this science took place simultaneously at, get ready, I'm going to list them, uh, the Australia Radio Physics Laboratory in Sydney, one, the physics department at University of Manchester, two, and this is a shout out to everyone who's at the History of Science meeting in Manchester right now. We are thinking of you. I wish I I could be there because it would be cooler in Manchester than this in New York. (laughs) So so University of Manchester, three, Cavendish Library at Cambridge, four, Leiden Observatory in the Netherlands, five, Harvard College Observatory in Massachusetts, six, Caltech, seven, New National Radio Astronomy Observatory in West Virginia. Ah, And I say that um, not just to put out there each of these individual, not just to be pedantic, but rather to show um, and to really put out there for listeners what the range of sites is that you're talking about, and also simultaneously how challenging um, I can imagine as a reader this is to tell a story that's dependent on really meaningful work in not just one site, but did I count seven sites? Okay, so uh, but what I'd love to ask you about, because this is, um, this is so important, it seems, to the work that the book is doing, is really about this range. Um, and I have kind of two major questions about this um, mm-hmm. to, to start us off and to talk about this uh, chapter. First, what were some of the challenges for you in doing this kind of transnational history of science? And also, um, can you talk a little bit about um, this as a as a kind of methodological um, cause, maybe not cause, cause is perhaps the wrong word, but it seems like moving us toward a more transnational picture of the history of science is an important part of what you're trying to do, not, not just with this study, but as a practicing historian of science. So can you talk about that a little bit as it shapes what you're trying to do in this part of the book? And can you also talk about some of the challenges for you um, of doing that kind of a cross-translocal uh, research? Um, yeah, no, and I... I probably shouldn't use the word cause, but I'm going to use the word cause <laughs> okay, because, sorry, you, can because you know, if, if you, if you can't be honest about this kind of thing, what can you be? I think it is a cause. I think, I think that there is, I think there is a cause. I think a lot of the, a lot of the early work that I did in graduate school was, you know, we've, we've all read lots of books and they're, they're all 
these nice disciplinary studies, which which reveal a lot about, about sciences, and there are nice national studies. They reveal a lot too, and I think that I think that as the field of the history of science is maturing and changing, and we've been through our philosophical turn and our sociological turn and our empiricist turn and this turn that turn, and I think another turn that that we really should go through is a turn towards um, both transnational and interdisciplinary kinds of stories, particularly and particularly for um, the Cold War era. I think that what happens is that that just reflects reality. It reflects a historical change that sciences become less disciplinarily specific and they become more interdisciplinarily community oriented. Um, one of the one of the great one of the great debates we've currently had in the in the uh, history of science is all about what are what are boundaries, what are knowledge boundaries, what are what are the community, what are the disciplinary boundaries? How do people establish and defend boundaries of their work, their practice, their instrument? These these boundary discussions have been bounded. Um, a community discussion, I think, looks at that boundary problem from the other way around. We look at who is attempting to come into the community, who is attempting to join forces with someone else, and why are they attempting to do it? When you have a subject like radio noise from space, this is encouraging a whole range of people to come towards this very amorphous field that nobody knows what it is. It's called noise for the first four or five years. Um, it's, it's not called radio astronomy. It's called radio noise. They don't. They literally do not know what to call it. Um, it's amorphous. It's noise. It's this background signal that you get. Um, but you have people from rockets who are interested in rockets. You have a, you have optical astronomers. You have radio physicists. Um, you have radio engineers, you have Americans, you have Australians, you have Brits, you have the Dutch. Um, all of these people have their own vested interests at their own local institutions, local disciplinary communities, and they all come together. Methodologically, then, I think that um, I think that the or what I, one of the causes I would like to see is more internationally comparative work because. Science doesn't exist nationally specifically. Um, science always attempts to make universal claims. Science always at least attempts to be transportable to other places. Scientists want their work to be read by other people. Um, this national boundaries might, um, national boundaries are incredibly important for the funding of science. Um, though, as the radio astronomy story tells, there are actually ways in which you can get around that too. The Australian Radio Telescope very famously was half-funded by an American foundation. Um, uh, the, so their national boundaries play a, um, a, much more, a much more dubious role in the creation of scientific instruments, um, creation of scientists, creation of knowledge, um, than I think we've always um, often been very comfortable with or been willing to admit. Um, but I think once you cross those boundaries and you deal with cases where the scientists themselves are constantly crossing those boundaries, in the radio astronomy story, basically everyone goes everywhere. Um, again, John Bolton on the cover is a great example. Starts out as a radar operator in Britain, moves to Australia, eventually moves to um, Caltech, moves back to Australia as the director of the Parkes Radio Telescope. Um, you know, he, he did three countries um, in less than a decade. Um, Joe Pawsey is the same. He eventually becomes the Australian director to the National American Radio Astronomy Observatory. Um, tragically, he dies about two weeks after he gets the appointment. But, but that a national laboratory, a, a particularly nationalist laboratory, is appointing an international person speaks to um, the nature of radio astronomy as an international scientific community rather than a purely national enterprise. And that's sort of one of the big things. Um, but the, uh, the challenges there are to how you, how you really bring those characters together. They, they have to be 
overlapping with one another. Um, and the radio astronomers were an excellent example of, of a groups of scientists who are constantly um, moving, communicating with one another, um, and crossing boundaries of all manner of sorts. Um, the, the great example, and I think it's in Chapter 2, but the great example is, um, is when the Royal Astronomical Society comes and has a look at the new, Jodrell, the new models for Jodrell Bank, which is outside of Manchester, and uh, Bernard Lovell's grand plans for a grand radio telescope, the president of the Royal Astronomical Society makes a comment like, um, you know, what, what great work you've been doing in observational astronomy, in, in radio astronomy, brackets, all physics. He, he literally puts the brackets, all physics, into his speech because he honestly doesn't know. It, it's both. It's neither. It's this cross-disciplinary thing which is emerging right before his eyes. He's, he's literally been there for a week, uh, for a weekend uh, conference. And this new form of the organization of science is, is emerging right before his eyes. Now, do you think that the nature of the object of study for them, i.e. the, the sky, um, as you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, lends itself to this kind of collaboration, this need for this kind of collaboration, or rather cooperation, um, as you put it in this chapter? Or do you think this is something that actually characterizes the sciences writ large in this period? Um, I think that there are. I think one of the one of the one of the other great asymmetries of the sort of history of Cold War sciences to date, particularly. And, you know, all the fantastic work that's really been done on the sciences um, and the military-industrial complex, the rise of big physics, the rise of, of big science, the rise of big biomedicine. These are, these are, you know, hugely transformative stories that have very much focused upon the role of the nation-state and the role of the military-industrial complex in particular, that how that has changed the nature of scientific work, the nature of scientific discovery, the nature of scientific um, instruments. I think that around that story, or even perhaps weaved through that story, are other scientists who very particularly either overtly reject the military-industrial complex, and this is um, the radio astronomers are are fundamentally here. They should be part of the military-industrial complex. They were all part of it during the war. <laughs> they specifically reject it at the end of the war. That's one of their major transformative moments. They um, there is a there's a very famous there's an incident later on in the book um, where where one of the radio astronomers is talking to his superior about how to get money for the a giant radio telescope and and his superior goes well can we can we sell it to defense and the radio astronomer goes well there's really there's really no way to sell it to defense we we really aren't doing that we couldn't honestly claim to be part of that um, there is another famous incident with uh, with Lovell in the end where he's um, he's taken money from the military industrial complex in the, in the late 1950s um, but never does anything he takes their money and a year later this um, this lieutenant writes to him and says you know well did anything ever come of that money we sent you yeah well we haven't really done the work yet says Lovell and about a year later um, a captain and this is of course nicely how the military industrial complex works a captain writes again going um, have you done anything with all the money we sent you? No, says Lovell, and I, I don't really think we can. And so he just sends the money back in the end. Um, that, that the radio astronomers are going, like, they're sending money back to the military-industrial complex? Um, I don't believe any physicist ever did that. <laughs> but um, this is, you know, that strikes me as being fairly unique in that kind of way. Um, but I think that there are stories where that, um, during the Cold War, of scientists who really are far more outside the military-industrial complex than, than I think a lot of the dominant narratives that we deal with um, regularly um, have sort of given given them credit for. And so, you know, uh, this is a case in point uh, might be useful in in correcting some of that asymmetry, I would I would suggest. Thank you. And, and I'll just signal also 
um, for listeners, I won't ask you to talk too much about this, but another kind of correction that you offer for dominant discourses of the history of science is also in this chapter, and this is in emphasizing the importance of cooperation rather than competition in driving recent science, and specifically taking on the emphasis on competition um, as it manifests in the work of Thomas Kuhn, who has been so influential for many of us who are trained in the history of science. And so I mention this just to, to signal this for listeners to, um, who might be interested in this aspect of uh, historiography of science to look in particular at Chapter 2 because there's a, a very in-depth discussion of that there. So one of the things that also comes up in this part of the book, and this is Chapter 2 and, and also Chapter 3 focus on this, is an emphasis on the importance of student training and pedagogy and shaping the emergence of this community and in really shaping the sciences in this period. So you mention at the end of Chapter 2 um, the importance of student recruitment and training to helping shape the interdisciplinary radio astronomy community in the U.S. and in Britain. And that story and that emphasis on the importance of students and training and pedagogy really continues throughout the next chapter. This is, in fact, one of the major axes of the book that you set out at the beginning, the importance of the recruitment and training of students. And a focus on pedagogy is a way to get at the labor of science in this particular context. Now, you talk about a lot of aspects of this in this part of the book, and I won't ask you to recreate um, this, this story mm-hmm. for us, and, and I'm hoping that listeners will go and read the book themselves to get the fully fleshed out story, but there are a number of ways in which you're showing through the, uh, the through apprenticeship and the institution of apprenticeship and through other aspects of examination and curricular reform and graduate student recruitment, uh, the this discipline, not discipline, that's in fact probably the exact wrong uh, word to describe it, but this community, rather, of radio astronomers is really emerging, and this is really central to what's happening. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that in the context of the work that you're doing in this part of the book. Yeah, no, one of the interesting... One of the interesting parts, I think, of the formation of, of new scientific communities like the radio astronomy community is, is the notion of that it very rapidly, it very rapidly t- took shape um, from really very strange guys doing their own thing. Um, 1945, 1946. Um, by the mid-1950s, they have institutions, they have radio observatories, they have PhD programs, they have a fully-fledged scientific organization. Um, And one of the interesting parts from that was how much of that work I kept noticing was really done by the students of the radio astronomers themselves. Um, The radio astronomers are leading, but but a lot of their students are doing this, um, particularly at um, the early radio astronomy um, program uh, at Harvard Observatory, um, where where they form a graduate program um, in radio astronomy as early as 1952. Um, Caltech formed very shortly thereafter. Lovell's in, in the University of Manchester and the one in Cambridge are also uh, by the late 1940s. Um, very much from the outset, even before they really have a name for the thing, they have PhD students, they have graduate programs, they have research programs that are that are very much dealing with um, with uh, graduate student training and recruitment and training. And here, um, you know, they the the place that I really or the the work that that's just foundational whenever you talk about pedagogy or student recruitment and training is of course Andrew Warwick's um, Masters of Theory, um, which was which really just turned my whole thinking around um, when I when I read that book um, about the power or the analytical power that dealing not with the not with the the outcomes of science but dealing with the labor and and the productive nature of, of scientific work that one of the major things and and um, here also uh, uh, Kathy Olesko is also great in this that we we we've got to concentrate on the labor of science rather than just the outcomes of science um, scientific papers dissertations um, these kinds of things are important um, but the students themselves are doing a lot of the work um, at the coal face of, uh, you know at, at the side of the telescope um, and I really wanted to see, and I was very taken with how um, overlapping that process was, that the process of building a new scientific community, the process of building a whole new field of science 
What are its instruments? What are its questions? What are its research focuses? What are its institutions? Um, what are its funding sources? These things were bound up with what are students? What work are students doing? How do we train students? What should train? What should students be trained on? How do we? Inter- what work do students do? In um, in programs, um, and particularly in in uh, in chapter three, I think I really go into uh, the disciples of science, and so instead of and uh, instead of going in for what are the disciplines of science, I'm really going in for what are the disciples of science? What are the young disciples doing? How are they learning the values? Of the new scientific community, how are they imparted those values? How do they how do they impart them on in in each of the various ways they're going? And here in particular, um, the uh, the site at the site at um, uh, Jodrell Bank in England is, is speaks volumes, I think, about how the program itself and the field itself is learning from its exposure with putting with the process of putting through graduate students through through their paces and there are some examples of exams and things which are always which are always great exam questions um, and then also turning to the Harvard radio astronomy case where the major instruments at the Harvard observatory in the end become the phrase they use is training instruments they don't have world-class research instruments by the 1940s and 50s anymore. They have training instruments. They only have instruments that are good for student training. But a radio telescope um, can take that training instrument and make it into now a research instrument. But no one at Harvard knows how to use a radio telescope. They actually have to hire a physicist from the physics department and get in a, um, a visiting professor from Australia and another one from the Netherlands in order to teach not only themselves, but also their graduate students how to do radio astronomy, because nobody knows. Um, so you have world-class astronomers who, in effect, become as much graduate students as the graduate students that they are that they are teaching. Um, they themselves they themselves learn um, what that means, and I and that's sort of one of the uh, what I would suggest is one of the sort of the big the big point counterpoints of the book. Uh, the point counterpoint of the narrative is um, that as the radio physicists learn to be astronomers, so the optical astronomers learn to be radio astronomers. And so you have this sort of to and fro as people exchange, as they visit, as they go and teach classes um, at someone else's institutions. Um, and this happened This happened everywhere, um, uh, particularly with the Australians, as it turns out, uh, as I never never get tired of pointing out. Um, by, the, by the 1950s, you now have Australian radio physicists teaching at these world-class universities um, in, in astronomy. Um, but they're radio. They're trained as radio physicists. If we're if we're looking at what are the boundaries of things, if we're looking at disciplines of things. These people are not um, disciplinarily codified to be at these at these programs, and yet there they are, and and uh, cooperating in in building textbooks, building exams, building lecture courses. That's what they're doing. Well, David, thank you so much. I think I have, um, there's one final thing I want to ask you about before we come to the conclusion of our conversation. And this really takes us into one of the major themes of the fourth and fifth chapters of the book. And this is the importance of material culture and a focus on Mm. instruments and scientific instrumentality to the story that you're telling about the creation of the scientific community. So this is another, um, and perhaps the last one I want to ask you about major, major access of the book is this focus on um, instruments and material culture. One of the most important aspects of this is the development of giant radio telescopes. And this is probably anyone who's familiar with radio astronomy. This is probably one of the first images that pops into their head is precisely the kind of giant radio telescope that's shown on on the cover of the book that we think of um, Jodie Foster and, you know, and sci-fi movies, at least for me, that was the first image that came to mind. It's these giant... For for all my relatives, too. (laughs) Right. Um, So this is a really important kind of work that the book is doing. So chapter four 
looks at a con- well, actually, both chapters look at a context between the mid 1950s and mid 1960s, where five major groups of radio astronomers are building these large radio telescopes. And you're arguing in this part of the book, these these final two body chapters, that the whole process of planning, of funding, of operating these giant machines builds an interdisciplinary and international community of radio astronomers fixing what you call their moral economy. Now, chapter four focuses on the the four major first-generation radio telescopes that were designed, funded, and built within 10 years. So it's a a relatively rapid process. And chapter five looks at a counterpoint to these four big radio telescopes examined in the previous chapter by looking at the American National Radio Astronomy Observatory, which is explicitly defined as a very national project in contradistinction to the previous four. Now, this is um, this is an important part of the story. So I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about this um, a little bit, as much as you you know, as much as you'd like, really. But one of the major um, points that comes up in these chapters, really emphasizing and honoring the importance of these machines in terms of material culture, is the design of them. So there's an argu- there's some degree of argument over whether these telescopes should be designed in a way that's parabolic, or whether they should be designed in a way that's I'm going to try this, so bear with me. Interferometric, right? Uh, yeah, interferometric. <laughs> so, parabolic or interferometric design. Um, this comes up for them in terms of, and, and you know, this, this is a decision on which some major um, money and international relationships hinge, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, could you talk um, for a little bit about these? big telescopes. Um, why so big? First of all, what was the big deal about over-design, and what are the major take-home lessons that you'd like us to take away from this emphasis on the material culture of science as instantiated in these major um, radiometric telescopes? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that the... Uh, I, th- I think it's right. There's, there's a... One of the great transformations is that you can... Is that within within ten years, within within a decade, um, radio, the radio astronomers go from isolated, small scale. Um, several like to celebrate the Cavendish style. You know, these these littered small laboratories of one or two researchers doing their um, hokey experiments um, to this international big science like radio astronomy as Alvin Alvin Weinberg the director of Brookhaven always did radio astronomy becomes a becomes the poster child for for big science right up there with cyclotrons um, or up there with big oceanography radio astronomy is is one of the biggest of the big sciences in the cold war and yet it isn't the same as the other ones not least of which um, because it doesn't largely take money from the military industrial complex to fund it so one of the usual funding sources is notably absent in the radio astronomy story the other thing that happens is that um, very rapidly in, in in at least five or six places um one or two designs of radio telescope very much solidify as being um, as being that. But again, in retrospect, we know that one of the great successes um, comes not from the dominant form of radio telescope, the parabolic form of radio telescope, the big dish, um, uh, which has been in many. It's been in both Judy Foster and, of course, in James Bond movies. There's a very famous fight scene over the Arecibo dish, as it turns out. It's the other good movie one to go for. Um, uh, that is not what wins astronomy um, its Nobel Prize with, with uh, Martin Ryle. Um, uh, Martin Ryle pioneers the interferometer. Um, and an interferometer is an array, a long, what looks like a fence, um, my, uh, two and three mile long fences set perpendicular to one another um, that, that gains um, far greater resolution um, than the uh, than the than the parabola, and and that's um, one of the, the things that helps uh, Martin Roll so uh, gain uh, gain his Nobel Nobel Prize. So in terms of the in terms of the dominant form of instrument at the time, um, in retrospect, it it wasn't at all. <laughs> but the um, around the world. Again, with a lot of these radio telescopes being built simultaneously, um, it really evinced for me the way in which the international community was working. The one of the ways in which a science like radio astronomy or a group of scientists like the radio astronomers is able to build 
numerous giant, very expensive um, facilities very rapidly is that they are all mutually supporting one another, Um, in particular on the argument that each of these instruments is part of an international um, network of science, that the that one telescope isn't sufficient. It's never sufficient. They all have to go together. They all cooperate with one another. There are designs that are sent backwards and forwards um, from most of the major groups. Most of the major groups have um, uh, players that go that go backwards and forwards. Um, cooperation and community helps them build these giant radio telescopes um, in the in the same as a nice counterpoint to the giant cyclotrons and the, and the giant rockets that are being built by, again, actually rather interdisciplinary groups, um, really, um, but are also very nationalistically focused. Um, so this then, this then brings out another aspect, I think, of Cold War science, um, which I hope the radio astronomy story um, really exposes a lot more of, that there's a lot more scientific cooperation um, and a lot more community going on in the Cold War than perhaps we have um, to date appreciated. Well, David, thank you so much. There's a ton of material that we didn't have a chance to talk about in the context of the book. And um, and there's also a conclusion that we haven't mentioned that talks about, among other things, one of the two films um, that bookends yes. the story. So there are really interesting elements here of you know how this story refracts into popular culture. You talk about um, the, how to understand this in the context of big science. There's a lot in the book that um, readers will find that we didn't have a chance have time to talk about. It's a very rich study. So is there anything in particular that you um, would like to mention that we didn't have a chance to talk about? Well, Given, given that these interviews, I think, are, you know, for uh, not necessarily an Australian audience, but um, for everyone else, um, yes, very, very famously, and not all, sci- not all sciences can lay claim to this, there is, in fact, a very funny movie about the Parkes radio telescope called The Dish, um, which came out. By this group of very, very the Australian equivalent of like Saturday Night Live, um, they wrote this movie that that's that the that they were able to produce and and have this very charming, very funny story, um, um, and and this movie that came out in uh, two thousand in Australia, um, that but that kind of cultural import of a, of astron of a, of the subject of astronomy in Australia I think also speaks to that but it's um, if anyone hasn't seen the dish I recommend it to everyone <laughs> okay I'll try to I'll try to remember to put a link to that in the post as absolutely well. absolutely absolutely the dish. okay <laughs> so David now that this book is out and congratulations again on the book what's next for you what current project or projects are inspiring you well, the um, as it, as it turns out, um, this the um, I, I mentioned this and I came across it, and this is this is again one of those sort of lucky lucky stories. But I came across it in in the archives um, that when the radio astronomers were attempting to get funding for um, their radio telescope, they wrote to the Rockefeller Foundation. And the Rockefeller Foundation actually, in the end, gave them um, a quarter of a million dollars to fund the giant radio telescope in Australia. I mean, in that file, there was another letter several years later from another group of people, from another group of scientists in Australia, who said, in effect, um, "You funded the Australian giant radio telescope. Please, would you like to also fund our phytotron?" Um, and I'm going. I don't even know what a phytotron is. What what is a phytotron? I I, re- I have no idea. So I, I I go and I ask Nick Rasmussen, who of course is knows all things. Um, and Nick Rasmussen says, "I oh, have a sort of some like climate controlled greenhouse thing." Yeah, they they were very big for a time. And so I go and look into that, um, and then discover that in 1957, just before Sputnik, um, the American National Science Foundation was going to be giving you its biggest grant yet, and it was going to be giving money for for four subject areas. Radio astronomy, to build the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, for centralized computing laboratories, um, so big computing centers, um, for, for nuclear reactors, um, and nuclear industrial research and controlled environmental laboratories. And so this really struck me. Um, and so I've gone off and I've begun to write the history of, of phytotrons, of, of these 
um, computer controlled, um, fully hermetically sealed greenhouses that could produce and reproduce all of the environmental variables in which plants grew and developed. Um, and the first one of these um, phytotrons, because they were they were given this very um, very sexy name um, one day. By, by none other than Robert Millikan of the uh, famed uh, Millikan oil drop experiment um, thing. Uh, Robert Millikan actually claimed they were going to be bigger than the atomic bomb at one point, uh, believe it or not, um, which is something for a Nobel Prize winner in, in physics to say. Um, but Phytotron started at Caltech under a scientist called um, a botanist and plant physiologist called Fritz Wendt. Um, and then eventually um, 30 or 40 Phytotrons were built around the world, um, several in the US, one in Australia, a big one in France, um, a very big one in the Soviet Union. Um, uh, these, uh, these, these climate-controlled um, biological and botanical laboratories um, changed form. Um, Fritz went, went on to build um, the famous Climatron, which is at the Missouri um, Botanical Garden. Um, and then most recently, ecologists have, have reinvented it again. Um, the Ecotron has just opened at Imperial College in London and another one at Montpellier in France um, to do controlled climate um, ecological studies. Um, and so there's a whole series of biological trons um, which have sort of emerged. Um, and this story... Um, is almost unknown. It is, it's almost completely unknown. I was talking to uh, Susan Lindy about this, um, and she's going, how have I never heard of these things? <laughs> and I'm going, no one's heard of these things. Um, uh, though, uh, uh, and so, so it's, uh, it's, been, it's been totally great. Um, and that, that, um, that project is, is uh, coming along very nicely um, and hoping to have another, uh, another book-length study of, um, again, multiple phytotrons in multiple areas um, and, uh, and uh, dealing with many of the same kinds of issues, um, uh, but, also, um, but also not. Um, but again, it's this... Um, in the end, it becomes this sort of quartet of sciences, which I think are the other Cold War story, um, which are centralized computing facilities, um, teaching nuclear reactors, um, which is what I would like my next book to be on, the nuclear reactors that were built to teach people how to build and use nuclear reactors, um, which is, in a, in a sense, the origins of nuclear engineering programs, um, a very big one at North Carolina State, for instance, which also has a big phytotron funded by big tobacco. Um, R.J. Reynolds and the Camel funded the um, uh, North Carolina Phytotron. Um, the NSF funded the University of Wisconsin Biotron, um, which still operates. Um, uh, the public of, of Missouri funded the Climatron. And uh, Campbell Soup Company and the Earhart Foundation founded the original um, Phytotron at, at Caltech, um, original Phytotron. It was designed um, to design... Uh, uh, to do research into um, tomatoes that could be grown in warm conditions. Oh. So yeah, yeah, uh, and so this you know this this whole um, this whole uh, very very interesting thing. So at the same time as these phytotronists are um, re doing research into the whole organism, right down in the same department at Caltech, you have Max Delbrook, and you have. Uh, Boris Afutsi, and you have James Watson for two years as a postdoc. You have the beginnings of molecular biology in the exact same department as you have the um, uh, the largest laboratory, at, the largest biological laboratory at Caltech for a number of years. Um, the um, Cal um, Caltech's Phytotron, um, and this is the this is the new story. <laughs> Well, David, that's fabulous. So I already can tell that I'll be talking with you again when that book comes. Out. So get to writing, so that we can. Talk. I, I will get to writing. I will get to writing as soon as we can. Right. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure, and um, thanks for thank taking the time. And best of luck with the next project. Thank, thank you very much. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much for joining us, and see you next time. <laughs>